Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika, but with a cough drop. <laughs> okay. Is this your new, your new name? Just today. You're the artist formerly known as Mika. Now you're Mika with a cough drop. Yeah, because the artist Mika was already taken. That's true. I had to go with <laughs> Mika with a cough drop. That's a terrible addition. Shut up. That's Enter what, the store. That's what happened to Quinn92. He wanted to just be Quinn, but apparently there was some like old guy who's just been releasing stuff on Spotify forever with the name Quinn. And they asked him, like, could we have it, please? And he was like, no, and if you use it, I'll sue you. It's like, all right. So they just added the Roman numerals to the end. He's forever in my mind Quinexiax. Yeah, a lot of people say that and he doesn't like it. It just is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, we're doing a music history podcast. <laughs> that was music related, music adjacent. I know. Okay. I, just, I feel like I totally threw off your intro and I didn't know if you would like that or not. I don't really have an intro, so it's fine. Yeah, we do. You go, hello, my name is Nick. And then I go, and my name is Mika, but with a cough drop. Then you go, and this is Sound of History, a music history podcast where I explain a moment from music history to my wife who doesn't pay attention or care about what I have to say. That's our intro. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. But I do care about what you have to say, which is why no. we've been doing this for <laughs> two years. Just because I forced you to. It's you don't force me. Three years. Three years? We started right before pandemic hit. Oh, dang. We started January of 2020. So a little over three years now. But I mean, we still, it's what, 60 episodes for us? So <laughs> it's, it's not a lot, but longer sure than I is. thought we would go. Anyway, uh, Follow us on social media. There's actually stuff happening on Twitter right now because I'm listening oh, yeah. through the 100 Greatest Albums. I thought you just meant in general. <laughs> there's always stuff going on. We never comment on it, but there's always stuff going on. But I'm listening through Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Albums of All Time and just tweeting my general thoughts. I don't like how many compilations they have. So, it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, go go check it. that out. It's twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore. Um, I think that's all we we have going right now. Uh, do you want to do your segment? Mika is the host now. You've had nothing going on in your life, so I don't know what we're hey gonna guys, do this about. How did how did we get the texture that is puffed rice? I don't understand it. It's basically styrofoam, but it's rice. So like, how? You know? Does anyone know? I could Google it, but I thought instead I would just wait and see if anyone yeah. told me. Get some audience participation going on. Because I'm really, I want to I know. I'm confused. <laughs> it's, it's just like eating styrofoam, which is so cool. I love it so much. I don't know. Same way we got Cheetos, I guess. Like the big ones, the puffy ones. Cheese puffs, I guess is what they're called. I don't understand that either, but that's... Not rice, is it? What is Cheeto? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's one of life's great like mysteries. Dough? And then they like puff fry it? I don't know. I'm just confused. This is Sound of History where we ask life's big questions. What is Cheeto? What is it though? <laughs> I think it's flour. Probably. I think it's like a dough. I don't know. Okay, anything else you want to tell the people? 
Oh, don't um, don't pick off your glue on nails, because if you do, you might tear your nail but not see it, and then put new stuff on your nail, and then get an infection under your nail that causes you to have to go on antibiotics, and then you find out that you're allergic to said antibiotics, and then you have four miserable days that end in 14 hours in the ER. Yep, that about sums it up. Yeah, <laughs> just don't just. But that's that's all. Don't take antibiotics that you're allergic to. That's another good, good point. No one ever, do, no one ever does that. It's just the only way to find out if you're allergic to a drug is they're like, here's this drug, and then you're like, oh no. I mean, you kept taking it for three days after your allergic no, reaction. No, we're so. not getting into that on here because that okay, okay. We, did not present like an allergic reaction. That's true. We're not a, getting into my symptoms <laughs> on here because no. It was a bad reaction, but it wasn't. I guess allergic. All right. Anything else? Listen to any good music while you were in your sick bed? No. <laughs> I listened. I, I, I turned on YouTube and just let it play what it wanted to play. So I watched a lot of old videos. And then I turned on the, um, turned on the Basement Yard podcast. And, but it was like, I switched it to like the unplayed ones on Spotify. But if you do unplayed, if there's like 30 seconds of the mm-hmm. episode that you didn't finish, it can, it does that. So like I'd put it on one that like had a good bit of it left to finish and then I'd listen to that, but then I'd fall asleep. And so then it would just keep <laughs> playing like the 30 seconds or the two minutes or the like, then it's like 10 minutes of the next one. And then it's like 30 seconds of the one after that. So I just like, do, 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 like finished all of them. Nice. I'd wake up and they'd be yelling about something like they do. And then I'd go back to sleep. It was a weird time. (laughs) Fever dreams. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) All right. Any other, any other things? Oh my God. Actually, man, I haven't talked to people in a minute. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Artist on artist on artist on artist. It's another podcast, but you want to, you want to watch this one on YouTube because it's like an improvised one. Where, like, the cast takes, like, a... They're, they're doing, like, a like a round table, but it's on... They decide to do it on, like, Christian filmmakers or theater tech kids. And they all come in with those characters and then just, like, do a talk show of it. And it is so funny. But you, I tried to listen to it one time before I started watching it. And I was like, this is kind of hard to get into. And then I didn't watch it for a long time. And then I watched one. And it's just the joy is in watching it. So you got to watch that one. Cool. Artist on artist on artist on artist. <laughs> okay. It's so good. Any other things? No, I think that's it. All right. Mika no longer the host Mika's now? Mika's no longer the host now. Okay. Well, today we have the longest script I've ever written. So this will be a two-part episode. We're talking about... I think one of the best bands of all time. At least someone who released one of the best albums of all time. Easily. Uh, And I think it's fitting to have this kind of like be the end cap of our 70s era. After this, we'll go into like the glam rock hair metal of the 80s. That's our next episode. Yes. And we've kind of 
already branched pretty far into the 80s with some of what we've talked about. Like Michael Jackson was big in the 80s, MTV, all that stuff. But I think Fleetwood Mac is a pretty good little bookend for this. Yay! So I know you like Fleetwood Mac a lot. How do you know that? (laughs) You've talked about it a lot. (laughs) Do you know much about like their story and who they were or are, I guess? Not really. Cool. So this will be... Do you know much about them pre-Stevie? There was a Fleetwood Mac pre-Stevie? Oh, yeah. About 10 years. Almost. No, I did not know that. Well, that's what part one is about. Stop. Part one is... We don't even have Stevie? I've kind of broken it up. Like, it's hard to break it up. Right. But I just kind of decided a good stopping point. Like, we'll we'll see where we're at in our conversation. But I think a good stopping point would be around the time Stevie joins. Because that's kind of when they get a whole new look on who they are. Uh, you just blew my mind. <laughs> I'm shocked. Yep. Okay. Well, as is traditional with band episodes, we're going to be going back in time quite a bit. So get that voice ready. Or that sound effect. Cough Drop is working its magic. Don't worry. Is that your nickname? Because you're Mika with a cough drop, so you're just cough drop. No, the cough short. drop is working its magic <laughs> in my mouth, so I can do 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 do. Okay, good. Michael John Kells Fleetwood was born in Cornwall, England, in 1947. Pretty sure I have ancestors from Cornwall. I need to hear that name again. Michael John Kells Fleetwood. Dang, dude. He was the second child, and his older sister was an actress who unfortunately passed away from cancer in 1995. He was a typical army brat child, and his dad was in the Royal Air Force, so they moved around quite a bit. They actually spent like six years in Egypt and then moved to Norway, where Mick started to go to school and became fluent in Norwegian. He's got a little bit of an eclectic background, which always makes for fun music influences when you're older, I think. Yeah. Get some of that Egyptian and Norwegian flair in it. He was described as an intelligent kid, but did not flourish in an academic setting, which I think is true of a lot of creatives. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the rock stars we've talked about, that is the case. He was too imaginative, and by the time he was old enough to go to British boarding schools. What do we mean by too imaginative? (laughs) Who's like, sorry, this kid's not good at school. He's too imaginative. (laughs) Like, your school is too unimaginative what are you talking about so dumb by the time he was old enough to go to british boarding schools he had a really hard time doing well there he claims it's because he has a he had a hard time memorizing facts so his exams were always poor but he did love acting in the school's productions often in drag hell yeah and at his height of six foot six he was a pretty good athlete and probably a great drag queen. <laughs> well, a little bit different, but yeah. I'm kidding. When he was 13, his parents somehow recognized that he might have a future in music, so they bought him his first drum set. Good job, parents. Pretty soon after that, Mick gave up on an academic life and focused solely on music. His father, who wrote poetry, was also an amateur drummer, so his family always encouraged that artistic side. Which I think is kind of rare. For military father in the story of music in general. That's really cool. It doesn't happen all that often. 
With his parents' blessing, he dropped out of school at 15 and moved to London, staying with his sister in order to try and make it as a drummer. Which is very young to get your parents' blessing to drop out of school and move to the biggest city. It helps if you're living with your sister. True. And probably also helps that, you know, she was an actress, so she was probably already pursuing that creative life. Yeah. So she kind of, like, broke the ice a bit. Like, the big sisters... Big sisters can do a lot of mothering. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, if anyone's going... If your parents are going to let you move out and live with someone... The only way that you're going to do it is if you're living with your big sister. True. I'm just saying. (laughs) Or big brother. Yeah. I think my parents would have let me live with my oldest brother. I would never have wanted to. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) They would have let me. The question is whether or not the youngest, (laughs) the younger child actually wants to live with their big sibling. (laughs) I lived with the middle brother for a while. He was cool. I mean, I love my older brother too, but. (laughs) It's okay. We're annoying. We're annoying. (laughs) Uh, For a few years, Mick played the London club circuit, not really finding a place to fit in in terms of like a more permanent position. His first band was a group called the Cheyennes, which he was asked to join basically because he lived near the band's frontman. They were hired to be the backing band for legendary blues artist Sonny Boy Williams, but they weren't prepared for Sonny's infamous improvisation. So one night they got a scolding on stage during one of the gigs. That's so awkward. Yeah. On stage. The Cheyennes also opened for the Rolling Stones in some of the Stones' like earlier gigs. Wow. Yeah. But that band was already fizzling out when Mick joined, so he bounced around a bit more after that one. What do you think about the Cheyennes as a name? Where do you where do you rank that one? I know how you feel about ranking band names. I am very neutral on that. It's a very neutral name. There's really not a lot going on to it. Not bad, not good. Yeah. All right, that's fair. So about five or six out of ten. Five. Cool. We're sm- I'm smack in the middle. Yeah, that's a five. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Mick ended up in a band called Shotgun Express. How do you feel about that name? Way better. Really? Okay, so that's like a seven, seven, eight. Seven. Okay. So he ended up in Shotgun Express with a guy named Peter Green, who's a big... Remember that name? I remember that name. I was going to say I already knew that name. You do? Somehow. Okay. Very familiar name. Yeah, okay. Eventually, Peter Green left to join John Mayall's Blues Breakers, which also featured a guy named John McVie. Or McVie? I'm not really sure how to say that. I know that name. Do you know John McVie or do you know his wife, Christine McVie or Christy? Well, mostly Christine. Okay. Yeah, fair. So, yeah, remember those three guys. You got their names? Yeah. What are they? Peter, Christine <laughs> McVie's husband. <laughs> are you calling him Mick or Nick? Mick with an M. Because okay. his name is Michael, I think. Oh, Okay. Yeah. That band's drummer left in 1967, and Mick was asked to take his place. Mick said about that drummer who left, this is in the Blues Breakers, which Peter Green and John McVie are currently in. Okay. But Mick is just now being asked to join. Blues Breakers? Not as good. Yeah, that's fair. 
just kind of bland, boring. I give it a shit. five. Yeah. I, I'm not a huge fan of like really any band name that has the guy's name in front of it. I don't know. Like John Mayall's is John Mayall's Blues Breakers. Like Mayall's apostrophe S Blues Breakers. Oh, that makes it so much worse. Now yeah. it's like a two. Okay. <laughs> now it's a one. Yeah. So Mick said about the drummer that left the Blues Breakers, quote, technically he's in a whole different league than I am, but he was probably getting a bit too clever. The band didn't want any more drum solos, so he was out and I was in, end quote. That decision didn't really go down well with the audience that started a chant for the old drummer every single night. Yeah, I'm sure if you go from something really cool to something that's like, you know. <laughs> just basic. Like, yeah, just basic. It, it, they'd be like, what What the hell? <laughs> it, remind, it reminds me of Ringo replacing Pete Best, I think, in the Beatles. Like the the comment has always been that Pete was a great drummer, but Ringo was a good Beatle. <laughs> Because he would just upstage yeah. the other guys. So, Anyway, uh, when the crowd started to chant for the old drummer every night, John McVie would go to the mic and tell them to shut up. That sounds about right. <laughs> I like John. I think he's my favorite in this whole saga. He's, he's just like very chill, go with the flow kind of guy. That started a friendship that would eventually sustain Fleetwood Mac through some pretty tough times. Eventually, Peter Green left the Blues Breakers to start his own band, and he took Mick and John with him. And that's the band that eventually became Fleetwood Mac. John was initially reluctant to leave and join the new band, but when the Blues Breakers brought in a horn section, he decided it was time to move on. No thoughts on that? I like horns. <laughs> yeah, I think he just wants to play that more traditional blues rock style, which, like, horns don't really... Why? I, I don't know. Maybe he, it's not traditional. It's not traditional, like, Chicago blues sound. There's horns in blues? Not the traditional sound. I guess. I don't know. I love horns. Yeah, they're great. Um, their first show was actually without John because he hadn't agreed to leave the Blues Breakers yet. <laughs> Peter called the band Fleetwood Mac, taking Mick's last name and part of John's last name. At the start of it, Peter was the star of the band because he had received acclaim for his work with the Blues Breakers and that he is just kind of like the biggest name at that point. It's so wild that like, you know, Fleetwood Mac is like a phrase. It's a thing. Yeah. It's a name. It's a title. Yeah. And it's so funny that like at one point they're just like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> that like that. It's just so funny. How do you, where do you rank Fleetwood Mac as a... I can't be partial. That's fair. It's because, hard to judge it because it's just so iconic. Yeah. A band name. Yeah. It's just, it's the, the, you're right. I have nothing to add. It's too iconic. It's kind of like the Rolling Stones. Like it's not a great band name, but there, it's just such an iconic name that you yeah. can't really, can't really say anything about it. Yeah. But initially they were billed as Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. Oh, stop it. But Peter never agreed to that billing, and he hated that his name was added to the moniker. Okay. He said later, quote, Well, I pretty much felt that one day I would leave, and I wanted Mick and John to have a band. End quote. Who starts a band being like, I'm going to leave? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I mean, he, he did. But <laughs> it's just weird. Yeah. That happened a lot. Like, a lot of the 
a lot of the big guitarists back in the day would just kind of jump around. Jeff Beck, yeah. Eric Clapton, like that's just kind of what they did. They would maybe start a band, put some guys together, play a little bit, go solo, you know. So I think now's the time where we should go backwards and talk about John McVie. John McVie. I'm sorry if I'm saying that name wrong. It's just that's how it's spelled. Sometimes I think it's McVie, but it's MC. So I say Mick. John McVie was born in West London in 1945. He started playing the trumpet when he was really young, but switched to the guitar when he was about 13, playing in local school bands, mostly doing cover songs of bands like The Shadows. But since all of his friends were already learning how to play lead guitar, he decided he'd switch to the bass instead. Smart smart business move. Smart right business there. move. Everyone's already playing the guitar. Switch to, switch to the one that'll get you a job. At first, he just removed two strings on his guitar, but his dad bought him a pink Fender bass, which was the same one used by his biggest influence, the bassist of The Shadows. That's so awesome. <laughs> Look at all these supportive dads yeah. in this episode. This is fantastic. It worked out. Their sons made millions. One of John's music teachers, who was a pianist, didn't really understand the new rock and roll music that was spreading at that time, but he was open-minded and good at recognizing talent. So he'd let some of his students use his classroom as a practice space for whatever kind of music they wanted to so play. So cute. Yeah, it's great. Good for him. Well, who are all these adults <laughs> who are supportive and kind? See, when adults are supportive and kind of children, we get Fleetwood Mac. Let <gasps> that be a lesson to all adults out there. Oh, my gosh. But I guess... If you can't say that after Michael Jackson's. Michael Jackson's true. dad was an asshole, and then we yeah. got Michael Jackson. I was thinking, like, we would have no punk music if... All parents were supportive and kind. <laughs> so John left school at 17 and trained for a long time to be a tax inspector. You know, rock band, tax inspector, tax inspector. That doesn't give the same vibe. <laughs> Around that same time, John Mayall started to put together a Chicago blues-style band. Mayall wanted to recruit a different bassist, whose name was Cliff, but Cliff refused to join. Instead, he recommended John McVie, who had only played in bands at weddings and small things like that. Cliff convinced Mayall to give John a chance, so John auditioned and was offered a job as the Blues Breakers bassist. Nice. For a while, John kept his day job while playing with them before eventually deciding to focus on music full-time. That's just wild, like playing in a mm -hmm. blues band all being a tax inspector. Like, it happens all the time, I'm sure. Like, all these people yeah. with normal day jobs or playing rock gigs at night. Like, it happens, but it's just wild to think about. John initially had no idea how to play blues and learned from B.B. King records that Mayall gave to him. He was tenacious and dedicated as a musician. During his four-and-a-half-year tenure with the Blues Breakers, John was fired and rehired several different times. In 1966, Why? Peter, just shifting moods, I guess. I don't know. That's kind of what happens when one guy is like the leader of the band. If he's in a tizzy one day, he can just fire whoever he wants. Power trip. Gross. Peter Green, in 1966, was asked to join the Blues Breakers after their previous lead guitarist, Eric Clapton, left. That's funny. Yeah. For Peter Green's birthday, they all gave him some free recording time. So Peter invited John and Mick to join him, and they recorded three singles which could be said to be like one of the earliest examples of Fleetwood Mac. Here's one of those songs Yay. called Curly. Oh. 
it's hard to track down these songs. So let's see what we get. Okay, this is awesome already. The vocals in this one. It might be, but I mean, it's more about Peter Green was their vocalist. Peter was kicked out of the Blues Breakers and replaced with Mick Taylor, who went on to be the guitarist with the Rolling Stones. So the Blues Breakers is just, it's <laughs> just churning out stars. Yeah. <laughs> and Mick Fleetwood was kicked out for drunkenness, so they formed a new band that John was initially reluctant to join and eventually did. Yeah, so there's differing stories about whether or not they were kicked out or just left willingly, but hmm. probably kicked out. And probably. Then, but, like, probably in the same way that John was and then got back in. So they probably could have got back in and they were just like, eh, yeah. we'll just start our own one. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing happened, but I don't know. Peter Green also knew that they needed to fill out their sound some more on stage, and he heard about this guitarist named Jeremy Spencer, who had a specialty for the slide guitar. He fit in well with the group and officially joined. Jeremy was a massive hit with the audiences who loved his raucous onstage antics and his blues guitar playing. I don't think we really talk about Jeremy that much, but like remember the name because he's around and he shows up, but like we don't go back and tell his whole story. Got you. He's a really weird, interesting little side character in this thing. Fleetwood Mac found instant success with their first album. It was a self-titled blues rock album released in 1968. The album reached number four, even though no songs were released as singles. Here's one, here's one of the more popular songs from that album, which also became a hit for Santana, called Black Magic Woman. Black Magic Woman. So good. 
After they recorded their second album, Peter started to think that Jeremy's contribution to the sound was too narrow. He was basically only doing his slide guitar thing, so Peter wanted to add another guitarist to bring more to the group. Peter also wanted to take the band away from the traditional blues sound. Mick suggested an 18-year-old fan named Danny Kerwin. That's an interesting way to go. Yep. <laughs> Danny would often show up to their shows, often or like offer to carry gear and jam with Peter after soundcheck. Mick said, quote, Danny was a huge fan of Peter's. He would see us every chance he got, usually watching an awe from the front row. End quote. So Danny was asked to join and was astonished and delighted at the offer. That's adorable. Yeah. As you would be an eighteen year old getting to join your favorite musician's band. I guess yeah, pretty cool. dude. In November of nineteen sixty eight, with Danny now in the band, they released a song called Albatross that became their first number one single. Peter later said that the success of Albatross was thanks to Danny. He said, quote, if it wasn't for Danny, I would never have had a number one hit record. Oh, here is Albatross. slow like it's good it's nice yeah but what good background music i don't know yeah (laughs) i couldn't imagine it having radio play but around this time john mcvee became infatuated with christine perfect (laughs) christine who was a member of the band chicken shack how do you good good (laughs) good name like nine out of (laughs) ten She also sang on Fleetwood's second album, but like not as a member of the band, just kind of Just there. there. Yeah. The two dated for about two weeks before getting married in 1969. I can't. With Peter Green as the best man. So the- uh, Two weeks? Yeah. (laughs) They probably knew each other a lot longer than that, but yeah. So the band just kind of continued on for a while, releasing albums and touring in America- They struggled to find a record label, and the Beatles wanted them for their new label, but their manager decided on Warner Brothers, which the band has been with ever since. That's impressive. Yeah. In the late 1960s, Mick fell in love with a model named Jenny Boyd, as we all do. Yeah. It's just whether or not they fall in love with you back. Yeah. Or know that you're existing. (laughs) That's fair. All the models that I'm in love with don't know that I exist. (laughs) Just 
kidding. I, I can't think of any model. <laughs> I don't know a single model. Uh, Jenny's sister was married to George Harrison, the Beatle, and would later be married to Eric Clapton. All right. I, th- I think her name was Patty, Patty Boyd. Uh, so Mick and Jenny got married in 1970. But 1970 was a very rough time for the band. Peter Green, along the way, had got heavily addicted to LSD, and his mental health problems were quickly becoming an issue. He started wearing long robes and preaching against the dangers of money. I don't, I don't see how that's a problem. He wanted to give all of the band's earnings to charity, which was vetoed by the other members. Uh, I do see how it's a problem now. <laughs> He announced that he'd be leaving the band in May of 1970. At his last show with the group, they went past their allotted time, so the venue cut the power on them. Aww. But even still, Mick just kept on drumming with the power out. That's they, sweet. They didn't want it to end. They didn't want their, their yeah. band with Peter Green to end. Man. After leaving, Peter was diagnosed with drug-induced schizophrenia and Oof. spent a lot of time in psychiatric hospitals and undergoing electroconvulsive therapy. In later years, Mick felt really guilty about Peter's state. He said, quote, maybe we could have seen something that could have helped not to keep him in the band, but to help this person through the beginnings of a very emotional ride that really he's still on as we speak. Yeah, dang. Peter spent most of the 70s trying to get better while living with his brother. He did eventually have a bit of a career resurgence and played on a few albums and started a blues band in the late 90s. Good. He said in 1988, quote, I'm at present recuperating from treatment for taking drugs. It was drugs that influenced me a lot. I took more than I intended to. I took LSD eight or nine times, which is that feels low. I feel like it'd be more than that. But I don't know anything about LSD, so. Yeah. I just feel like if you're going to say you're addicted to it, eight or nine times seems kind of low. I don't know anything. All right, well. Uh, The effect of that stuff lasts so long. I wanted to give away all my money. I went kind of holy. No, not holy. Religious. I thought I could do it. I thought I was all right on drugs. End quote. That's like, you know, like, all right. All right, yeah. In July of 2020... Peter Green passed away in his sleep. There was no official cause of death listed. That seems like he he did good. Yeah. Seems like he had a nice yeah. little time there at the end. Yeah. Better than better than some other members. But back in 1970, when Peter stepped away from the group, they were in a bit of a turmoil. He was their principal songwriter and lead singer, so for a time they contemplated just breaking up. Right. I mean, after all, it was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. Like, what are you... No, it wasn't. <laughs> what he are you He said about? that it wasn't. He was mad about that. <laughs> For their next album, Jeremy Spencer, the blue, the slide guitar guy, mm-hmm. he took over as the band's creative leader. But he was also deep in his own drug addiction. <laughs> Christine, John's wife, was doing really well as a solo artist. She was twice voted England's best female vocalist. Wow. Yeah. She is. <laughs> but I'm kidding. I'm kidding. She officially joined the band in 1970, just as she was leaving Chicken Shack. From Chicken Shack to Fleetwood Mac. Iconic. Rolls off the tongue. 
While they were on tour in 1971, Jeremy Spencer said he was going to get a magazine. Like, he, just, just like popping out to the store, grab a magazine. Oh, okay. Okay. I wasn't sure <laughs> what that meant in the context and what you were doing. Well, he left the hotel and never came back. Who? The slide guitarist, Jeremy Spencer. What happened? He had become super disillusioned with his life in Fleetwood Mac and oh, thought no. that he sounded horrible on recordings. No, 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 no. The band found him a few days later where he told them that he had joined the Children of God, which was a religious cult, and would not be working with the band anymore. Okay, well, I thought that he killed himself. No. Joining a cult, cult. came out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> yep, welcome to Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> That's just what happens. Okay. Jeremy, after leaving, went on to work with the cult for quite a long time. He started a band with them that, as you would expect, was a flop. He worked as a book illustrator for them in the 90s. In 2006, he released an album that was a return to his blues style. And still a member of the cult? I assume so. He's still around doing like mostly instrumental blues work these days, but obviously not the success that he would have had if he stayed in Fleetwood Mac. Hope he's okay. Like, I think him and his family were still, like, doing work for this Children of God thing. So, I I don't know if he still is. I assume he is. Seems like not something you would just leave in your old age. So, Uh, the band held auditions to replace him and hired Bob Welch without ever actually playing with him. They hired him just based on some recordings that they heard. That seems desperate. Yeah. With his departure, with Jeremy's departure, the band was even more lost. Remember, he was now the creative leader after Peter Green. So now they lost Peter Green, who was their main leader, and then he stepped up, and now he's in a cult. So they're a little bit... (laughs) What you gonna do? They have a guitarist they've never played with before. They're they're a little bit in turmoil. Uh, Christine and Danny Kerwin, remember him? wanted to push the band more into mainstream rock, which they did with their next album. Am I supposed to remember Danny? He was the 18-year-old guitarist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Released in 1971, it was their fifth fifth album and the first to not make the charts. But it did open them up to a new audience in America. Here's their song called Future Games from that album. Better than Albatross. That's future games. I like it. It's chill. 
I understand why it's not number one. Like, I don't understand why Albatross was. So. Yeah, if Albatross <laughs> is, why? Like, I don't understand anything. Around this time, touring started to put a strain on relationships. No, a strain in Fleetwood Mac's <laughs> relationships? Danny Kerwin started to get heavily dependent on alcohol, which started to create friction between him and new guitarist Bob. Remember Bob? Yeah, they did. They didn't hear him. Yeah, they didn't audition him live. Could yeah. you do you could you name off the current members of the band where we're at? <laughs> Danny, Bob, Christine, yeah, two more. M- Mick, Christine's husband, <laughs> John. Yes, yeah. So Danny and Bob not getting along. Bob knew that Danny was a super talented musician, but Bob was super outgoing, and Danny was very withdrawn. Bob said later about Danny, quote, Danny wasn't a very lighthearted person, to say the least. He probably shouldn't have been drinking as much as he did, even at his young age. He was always very intense about his work, as I was, but he didn't seem to ever be able to distance himself from it and laugh about it, end quote. And he's fighting with this dude? Not fighting, just like, I think it was more Bob was getting annoyed with him, and Danny was... Kind of taken. He it kind of it. seems like he might need something other than being annoyed. Like my yeah. guy Bob, if you're picking up on those things, maybe just being annoyed with him isn't the the best plan of action. Am I crazy? No, you're right. But it's also 1971 where that didn't happen. Where no one's emotionally <laughs> intelligent. <laughs> People, you manned up. <laughs> Danny just needed to be a man and get on with his work. Good God. And have some fun. In the midst of all of this, they released their sixth album that was composed almost entirely by Danny. Wow, Danny. To give you a sense of Danny's musical abilities, here's one of his songs called The Green Manalashi. It appeared on an earlier album, not this sixth one, but it's one of his better known hit. Yeah, so this isn't on the album we're talking about, but I figure like I could just give you a sense of his composing. Show me the good stuff. Songs. This was back when Peter Green was still in the band, I'm pretty sure. Now when the day goes to sleep and the full moon looks That is so black that the darkness cooks Green Manalashi. I like. Ow. 
like Danny Kerwin songs? That was a question. Do you like Danny Kerwin songs? Yeah. All right. Before a show in August of 1972, Bob and Danny got into an argument backstage while Danny was very drunk. Danny smashed his guitar, refused to go on stage, and started to heavily criticize the band. So they had to fire him. Yeah. It was later very clear that the stress of being essentially the creative leader of Fleetwood Mac really got to Danny, and he had a bit of a breakdown. You don't say. I would say quite a bit of a breakdown, actually. More than... Keep going. Yeah. Mick said in 1976, quote, It was a torment for him, really, to be up there on stage. It was more a thing of, although he was asked to leave, the way I was looking at it was, I hoped it was almost putting him out of his agony. End quote. But then he added that he didn't really think Danny ever forgave him for the firing. Were you going to say something? I don't know. It's just hard. Yeah. Doesn't get better. Um, Bob thought that they had put up with him for too long and only kept him around because Mick and McVie saw him as Peter's protege. Screw Bob. (laughs) What's Bob doing here? (laughs) He had a couple good recordings, so now he's in the band. Ugh. In 1993, Danny looked back on his time and said, quote, I was lucky to have played for the band at all. I just started off following them around, but I could play the guitar a bit, and Mick felt sorry for me and put me in. I did it for about four years, but I couldn't handle the lifestyle and the women and the traveling. End quote. Through the 70s, Danny started a couple of other bands and released solo albums. None of his solo stuff was commercially successful, partly because he was completely reluctant to play live or tour at all. Alcohol and drugs also contributed to his decline. He was always pretty nervous and anxious, so when things got too intense with Fleetwood Mac, he retreated into drugs and alcohol. He recorded his last solo album in 1979 and did nothing else in the music industry. In the 80s and 90s, he spent some time dealing with homelessness. During a 1980 Fleetwood Mac show in London, he showed up at at their hotel. Mick said, quote, it was heartbreaking. He looked derelict. He told us he'd slept on a park bench the night before. Oh, my gosh. In 1993, Mick tracked him down to a hostel for the homeless that he had been staying in. A newspaper interviewed him, and he said, quote, I've been through a bit of a rough patch, but I'm not too bad. I get by. I suppose I am homeless, but then I've never really had a home since our early days on tour, end quote. This guy is so clearly... Like a mental, like rewording. This guy is so clearly like a person that has mental illness, mm-hmm. an addictive personality, mm-hmm. and like it's just like a very clear and obvious. Of course, these things happened. Like this mm-hmm. is the pipeline from like mental illness and like drug and alcohol use to like homelessness. This yeah. is just insane. It's the like, this is the story of so many people like him who weren't in Fleetwood Mac. Right, yeah. Like, and this is the story of so many people in successful bands if they weren't in those bands. <laughs> yeah. This is what, this is their path. He just happened to do both, so we know about him because he was in Fleetwood Mac. That's but wild. So poor, many people poor thing. have gone through this. Yeah. Um, 
in where are we? In 1994, his ex-wife said that he was disconnected from reality and living a simple life. Oh, he got married? Uh, yeah, probably back in like 70s and 80s before this started happening. Okay. In July of 2000, he was settled into a care home for alcoholics where Jeremy Spencer, remember him, cult guy? Mm-hmm. He went to visit him. Jeremy said that he was looking fitter and kept a guitar in his room, but was also in his own world. In June of 2018, Danny passed away in his sleep. Okay. His ex-wife said he contracted pneumonia earlier that year and never fully recovered from it. Okay. He was 68 years old. Okay. Wow. Nick, Nick said, quote, I cared for Danny a lot, and I care for his legacy. Danny was a quantum leap ahead of us creatively. He was a hugely important part of the band, end quote. All right, so that's the story of Danny. That's sad, dude. Yep. But now Danny's out, so we have John and Mick, the two constants, Christine, and Bob Welch. Screw Bob. Kick <laughs> him out. Well, can't say that yet, because we're getting another Bob. Back in 1972, the band was looking for a new guitarist and a new creative leader. They added Bob Weston, who was well-known for his slide guitar playing. He was a well-known session musician in the London blues scene. He had regularly played the same billings as Fleetwood Mac, so the group like knew who he was and knew his talent. On their next few albums, he played a large role with his guitar work, writing some songs, and even singing a duet with Christine. Their eighth studio album featured his song Hypnotized, which was one of the band's most successful songs in the U.S., so now we got two bobs. All right. You tracking with what the bobs? What are the last names? Uh, the one you don't like is Welch, like the grape juice. Okay. And then this is Weston, like the How are they hotels, both Bob W? Yeah. <laughs> That's a really fun album cover. Yeah. It's, um, it's the one, it's mystery to me is the, is the album and it's the one with like, the gorilla with the cake on the beach and then the, the book with the bite bitten out of it. He's eating cake by the ocean. This is where it came from. <laughs> yes, the same kind of story seems to come down from long ago. Two friends having coffee together just wild Leslie doing this episode and seeing to just how different their music is throughout all yeah. these different iterations of creative direction. Yeah. This sounds nothing like the Peter Green Fleetwood Mac. It doesn't. It sounds not much like the Danny Kerwin Fleetwood Mac. No. This is my least favorite. Really? I think Albatross is my least favorite. Well, yeah. I only got one. Albatross is a throwaway for me. <laughs> doesn't count all right well that's hypnotized as you could probably guess things were still strained with personal relationships in the band the McVie's marriage was very shaky so john's alcohol abuse and their constant working together wasn't helping that situation during the 1973 tour the new guy bob weston had an affair with mick fleetwood's wife the model jenny boyd that devastated Mick, and the rest of the shows had to be canceled. 
Yeah. Yeah. After their last show, the band told their sound engineer that they'd be splitting up. Mick said he could no longer work with Bob Weston. So... Just don't hire Bobs. Yeah, the band decided to drop Bob Weston in order to keep Mick. Like, you, you got, you can't get rid, yeah. of, <laughs> get rid of Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac. Bob Weston went on to play in a few other bands, released some blues stuff, and in 2012, his friends called the police when they were concerned that they hadn't heard from him in a while. When the police entered his home, they found him dead at 64 years old. Just to kind of wrap up his story. I know he wasn't around long, but Bob Weston is now out. The canceling of the tour after the Weston affair was a big deal financially. They had a lot of legal obligations to play and would be heavily penalized if they didn't. So, this is a pretty crazy decision here. Their manager hired a new group of musicians, called them Fleetwood Mac, and sent them on stage to perform. Literally just new people. Yep. (laughs) It's just like, all right, you need Fleetwood Mac to play. I'll just make a new Fleetwood Mac and send them out there to play. That's truly insane. (laughs) The manager said, quote, we are going to play that tour, even if I have to assemble a band myself and have them perform as Fleetwood Mac. Uh, That's so ridiculous. Can you imagine having a ticket to see a band and then it's like, ha ha, here they are. (laughs) What? (laughs) For a while, this new band actually stopped the real Fleetwood Mac from releasing music under that name because this new Fleetwood Mac was also signed to Warner Brothers and the manager said that he owned the Fleetwood Mac name. So he was letting the new Fleetwood Mac use it and not this Fleetwood Mac. This is wild. (laughs) So it started a long legal battle that eventually let Fleetwood Mac use their name again and they fired their manager, understandably. I'm surprised that they're still with their, with like Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh, but this meant that they were the first major band to manage themselves. <clears throat> cool. Yeah. Bob Welch, who at this point was the band's only guitarist, was basically running the group with Mick. And he realized that Warner Brothers was not prioritizing them and suggested that they relocate to L.A. The rest of the band agreed because they were signed with an American label while living in London. Yeah. So it's like out of sight, out of mind. They're not a huge priority. They then put out an album that broke into the top 40 of the U.S. charts for the first time, but ultimately wasn't very successful after that. Following their tour for that album, Bob, Bob Welch said, quote, I was totally exhausted by writing, singing, touring, negotiating, moving, and frankly, so were Mick, John, and Christine. We were all discouraged that Heroes hadn't done better, which is their album. Mm -hmm. Something needs to change, but what? There was also a kind of fatigue, anger, and bitterness that all the work we had done hadn't really paid off. And we were just all sort of shaking our heads saying, what do we do now? Everybody knew that we had to find some new creative juice. End quote. Mick Fleetwood was in the studio when an engineer played him a song that he'd recorded from a band called Buckingham Nicks. Mick loved it, and the guitarist Lindsey Buckingham happened to be in the studio recording demos. So Mick met him. Mick asked Lindsey to join the group, and he agreed on the condition that his girlfriend and music partner Stevie Nicks could also join. Yeah. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Yeah. We're about to get into the, the rumors era. Yeah. Fleetwood Mac, which 
everyone knows so well. How do you feel about Fleetwood up till up till now? This is like wow. <laughs> it's one of the wildest band stories in music, I think. Yeah. And we're not even to rumors yet. Like this is all pre-relationship drama. All right, any closing thoughts before we end this? I part just one? can't believe that someone was like, "I'm going to put new people on this." And there you go. <laughs> yeah. But I just can't. I, I cannot believe that there wasn't a riot. I think that band also like went on to have a pretty good career. But what's like they, their name? I, they, I think they went by the new Fleetwood Mac for a while. Let's see if I can Google it and find out. Yeah, maybe I was wrong. Maybe they didn't really do anything. But it was members of a band that he was also managing at the time called Curved Air that, like, weren't doing anything at that point. So we just kind of recruited a lot of them. In. That's wild. All right. Well, that was part one of Fleetwood Mac. Next time, who knows when that'll be, we'll have part two where we'll talk about Stevie and Lindsay and the Fleetwood that I think most people know. Yay! Curved Air, good name. All right. They could have just stuck with that. Well, they broke it up, so they couldn't. That's so funny. Goodbye, people!